You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 213. On today's show, we talk about Miami, again, reconstruction of an ancient Egyptian face, and gold dental work. Let's dig a little deeper into those teeth so we can fit some more gold in them. (laughs) That was dumb. That was really dumb. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Rachel, how's it going? Good. We are, for those following our travels, because that's all we talk about at first, just to <laughs> incite negative iTunes reviews. <laughs> You're so mad about that one, I know, right? <laughs> I know. We're leaving Mexico tomorrow. We've been here, this is the longest we've ever been anywhere in the RV. Yeah. Yeah, like nine weeks. Yeah. Something like that. Almost 10 weeks, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're headed up into Arizona towards the Grand Canyon for a few days, which yeah. is finally looking like it's going to be warm enough that we won't you know, freeze our butts off every single day. So Mm -hmm. I'm excited about that. I don't know. It was a couple nights in the 20s. Well, (laughs) right. True. In the evening, it'll be cold. But at least during the day, it looks like it'll be nice Indeed. All right. Well, this first section is actually an update to something we've talked about in the past. In episode 165, we actually talked about the Miami Circle, Mm -hmm. which is something that Rachel and I worked on. It was like the project we really got to know each other on Mm because we'd met each other briefly on the project before that. But it was a CRM project, downtown Miami. And then episode 205, and we'll have links to both of these in the show notes, we discussed the current excavation that's going on there at right. what's called the Brickell site. Yeah. And three new, brand new 80-story high-rise is about to go up when yeah. they finish all this. But there's a lot of contention about the site there because they found a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. And I know we keep kind of revisiting this, but we have such a personal connection to this site because not only did we work on it together and we met there and we got to know each other there, we were on that site for like, what, like six months probably. And that's kind of a long time to spend on one project with the same group of people. So in CRM archeology, span you, you move around a lot usually. So it was just a unique circumstance and it was clearly a very important site that just keeps on being important because here it is like almost 20 years later. Well, maybe not quite. (laughs) No. Yeah. I guess that was 2005, wasn't it? So yeah, we're (laughs) 18 years later and we're still talking about it. We're still seeing it in the news. There's still contention about it. And this article here is basically just the next phase of that sort Mm -hmm. of back and forth that's happening between the people and the natives of Miami and the developers that want to come into Miami. So that's that's why I think it's important to keep talking about it. Sorry if it feels like we keep talking about the same things over and over again, but it's yeah. important. So on April 4th, a meeting was held by the Historic Preservation in Miami there, and they were to talk about the the planned development at the Brickell site. It, it's kind of a 
a pre-meeting that was just kind of set up to yeah so they could decide what they're going to do right and, and to give people a chance to comment so it's like not even like the actual meeting where they're making decisions it's just like a hey we're doing this and we have to talk about it kind of a situation yeah kind of sounds that way okay yeah. all right so but they're gonna make some decisions out of this meeting based mm-hmm. on what they were told by the people that showed up and you know to see what kind of plan needs to be made for preservation and mm-hmm. things like that everybody's pretty solidly confident that those high-rise condos are going to go up yeah it's just like when and what does it look like yeah you can't really stop that from happening and at a certain point i'm not sure you should stop it because like i mean people still need a place to live and we have to house all of all of our humans so there's that but yeah i don't know there's a lot of there's a lot of nuances there too yeah, the archaeological excavations so far have recovered artifacts dating back, of course, thousands of years, mm-hmm. including bones shaped into points, mm. pins, and even drilled shark teeth. Some pieces of pumice, which had to have been brought in from right, somewhere else. Right. There's no mm-hmm. real pumice around there. Mm-hmm. Lithic weights, usually those are used for fishnets, mm-hmm. and, and lithic rock rock weights, basically. And usually, weights usually look like something where it's almost like a rock with a tight belt around it. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it's got like a waistband. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where you would tie the, the rope that they would make. I'm using rope loosely, but yes. it's like a rope that like they would cord make. cord or rope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tie it to a net. Yeah. And of course, pottery sherds, but Miss Heather Walker on six south florida who wrote this article said shards i guess oh, i can't really no. falter for that too much but you i know, know. it's such yeah. a weird word it probably even if she was trying to write shards it probably autocorrected to shards probably i can't tell you how many times it happened to me when i was right. typing that word so yeah. i get it but yeah now it's of course believed but as we mentioned before that these artifacts were left by the Tequesta indians so mm-hmm. let's take a little minute and talk about some Tequesta history they have lived in this region since at least the third century bce And that's really solid evidence that we have going Mm -hmm. back that far. The site that we were on, actually, I think that I thought they dated stuff going back way further than that, but maybe not proof that it's Tequesta Indians. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. So, or at least can't associate it with stuff that the Mm Tequesta Indians did, right? Yeah. And the dating on that site actually would be kind of hard because it was all like waterlogged, you know, so I'm not sure what they had to actually pull dates out Mm -hmm. of, but yeah. One of the people to speak at the Preservation Society was Bob Carr, Robert Carr. He Mm -hmm. goes by in professional circles, but Bob was the guy in charge of the company that we worked for and the excavation down in downtown Miami. Yep. He has got to be like 80 at this point. I know. I swear but to God, he, he was old back then. He very much has an interest in the prehistory of Florida, and he always in, is involved in everything going on there, for sure. He is a central figure in Miami archaeology, mm-hmm. and really that whole area right there. He's just... He's got his hands in so many different things, and if anybody does anything archaeological, he's got a he's got he's a hand in it or, or knows yeah, about it. Exactly, yeah. he's an yeah. advisor or something of like those. Yeah, but he called the town the birthplace of Miami. Oh, he's wow. calling it, and he is calling it a town. He said there's a two thousand year old sediment that's really settled around. Not the Miami Circle, but north of the Miami Circle, mm-hmm. where we actually excavated on the yeah. north side of the river. Mm-hmm. That's where they think the actual Tequesta town was located. located. Mm-hmm. And this is again, we dug there in two thousand five and six, like you said, and. At the time of European contact, there was an estimated 100 to 10,000 Tequesta in the region. And I don't know why there's such a big range. It's just ethnographic it's, reports and yeah. journal reports and, and you know people writing in their diaries and stuff. So it's hard to say how many there actually were. Yeah, I'm sure it's hard to actually tell that. But it is really interesting to have a full-on town site, though, that is that old. Mm-hmm. Because if it's not 
associated with some kind of monumental architecture or whatever, it's kind of hard to identify that sort of stuff. So right. to have it is is really exciting. And I'm sure archaeologists definitely want to get their hands on it from an excavation standpoint. Right. Yeah, European contact would have been, well, in that area, could have been in the, the mid to late eight, 1500s. But I didn't really see where when contact happened there, but it could have been mm, 1600s as could well. Could have been, yeah, somewhere but, in there. But one of the oldest cities, if not the oldest city in the United States is St. Augustine, Augustine in Florida, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, and that was 1500s. Yeah, and that's yeah. north, far north of there, but right. there's nothing saying they yeah. wouldn't have made their way down south at some point. Yeah, for not sure. Not too long after that, yeah. By the 1800s, a couple hundred years after contact, their numbers had drastically dwindled from uh, not only settlement battles, like them just trying to hold their land, Mm -hmm. but also a lot of them were brought into slavery Mm -hmm. and disease, of course, Mm -hmm. which is what took down many, many Native Americans just because they weren't used to European diseases. It always strikes me as odd that the Europeans weren't equally taken down by Native American diseases. You'd think that would flow both ways, but... Well, and I do know that, you know, you always hear about trade happening from the Native Americans towards the Europeans. I'm sure they gave them, you know, blankets and mm-hmm. other stuff, just like we gave them. Right. And I don't know. Did we just have much worse diseases because of the cities we were living in? Maybe. As Europeans? Might be. Yeah. 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 I mean, when you have a lot of humans crammed together in the same area, that that is where yeah. diseases are born, you know, and Super Native bugs. Americans always live further apart. So maybe they just have right. fewer things to pass on, basically. And of course, that's not 100% true a lot of places. I mean, there have been some, like There's Cahokia. Some huge, yeah, some really big There's cities. There's 20 plus thousand people jammed into Cahokia in Illinois. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, they likely had frequent encounters, the Tequesta did, with the more numerous Calusa tribe that lived in southwest Florida. So they were like over in the Tampa area mm, okay. and, and that Fort Myers area. With the research I did, so there was a lot more numbers of them and the they were kind of always like encroaching on Tequesta territory. Mm-hmm. So the Tequesta, from what it sounds like, even though they had a town for 2,000 years, it sounds like they were always fighting to kind to keep that territory mm-hmm. and eventually of course lost yeah yeah yep, so for sure all right so back to this meeting that was held by the historic and environmental preservation board at miami city hall some people in attendance this was reported i was like in in the world of obvious news some people in <laughs> attendance were in favor of preservation and others were in favor of development <laughs> yeah no. Sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That is to be expected. I'm sure it was right. a probably a 50-50 split. Right. <laughs> Usually is, right? I mentioned that Bob Carr spoke and you can you can see what he said in some of the articles, but a person named William Pessel also spoke and he's an archaeologist from the University of Miami and he was quoted as saying, "If we miss this opportunity to really preserve portions of this site and study the artifacts, that have come from it, we miss the opportunity to fully understand where we have come from as a city and as a people. While he's not wrong, I'm pretty sure almost everyone in Miami is either from Cuba or New York or New Jersey. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's not necessarily where everybody in Miami came but from. But <laughs> the people that lived on the land that you currently occupy before you right. don't necessarily have a voice in what happens yeah. in the future, but it is good to remember who they were and what they went through yeah. when thinking about what you're going to do in the future, if that makes right. sense. It's just like having respect for past peoples, basically. Yeah. And there's even division on the preservation side amongst yeah. the preservationists. Some yeah. think it should be preserved for education, which mm-hmm. means maybe portions of it preserved as like a like a living heritage site maybe mm-hmm. they have some sort of glass floor or something in one of the buildings if it's right over it that shows something or some sort of representation right mm-hmm. that way so again for education and then some of the local tribal representatives again not representing the Tequesta because they're not really there anymore right um, say it should be left alone as a sign of respect which is 
usually a, a common Native American response. That they're, is. Yeah, their best preservation method is just don't touch it. Yeah. Yeah, but that's, that's unlikely just, to happen in downtown Miami. It's just so hard given where it yeah. it is. So there, you have to find a happy compromise between the two, yeah. which I think might be really difficult in this situation. Yeah. What's making those local tribes really say that is there are graves on the site like yeah. we found uh, to the north of the river. We did, yeah. Yeah, so they, they really get cautious when there's stuff like that around. Yeah, well, it's just really important to Native American ideology that mm-hmm. graves aren't disturbed. That's, yeah. Like even relocating them is really not cool depending on which tribe you're talking about and how they feel about the afterlife and how it's being treated. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I get that. Yeah, the developers said they've spent millions of dollars doing the archaeology in an attempt to preserve the artifacts found. They say they've got a preservation plan that they developed prior to starting and that they're using as a guide as they're moving forward for mm-hmm. how to extract things and, and, and what they're doing with it. Mm-hmm. But then that they're also working on a more detailed preservation plan moving forward as this excavation starts wrapping up, right? Mm. And it's not supposed to wrap up for, you know, several months now at the very least. But the developer, Jorge Perez, again, he said they've invested tens of millions of dollars to ensure the archaeological integrity of the project. And therein lies the reason why developers and archaeologists do not always get along. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We cost them a lot of money. Yep. But it's also, it's our cultural heritage, too. Yeah. I mean, that being said, he's going to put up three 80-story, you know, luxury high-rises yeah. where each condo is probably going to cost 500000 to two, three million dollars Right. Depending on what floor you're on. So, right, right. you know, I think they'll be all right. Yeah. So, anyway, he says that the biggest thing with this meeting that they had a problem with, the developers, was that taking any step toward additional designations like naming a historic site or something like that, you know, something of national significance or at least local significance, is premature and that they should wait for the excavations to finish. Because... You know, he's actually savvy as a developer in saying that because once the excavations are finished, that means there's nothing left there. Yeah. There's no true. like structures. There might be some some holes in the limestone like the Miami Circle, mm-hmm. but there's no structures. They're going to take out all the artifacts, all the remains, all that stuff is going to go. And then he's like, OK, now make your determination. Well, who's <laughs> going to call that a historic site when there's nothing left? That's a really good point. But it would be interesting to know what their excavation plan is, because often excavation is just excavating a certain portion of the site, but not the yeah. entire thing uh, enough that you think you're going to be able to f- you know, draw an entire picture of what was going on there. So and there might be still significant buried deposits that they don't touch even after yeah. the excavation. So there's that. But also thinking about the Miami Circle and what this guy might be doing, you're right, because yeah. the Miami Circle was preserved. Yeah. But it's it's not a thing that people go to see. You don't even know it's there. You just think yeah. it's a glorified dog park. So to have that land turned into something like that would be just a repeat of the mistakes that they made with the Miami circle and what they did wrong with turning that into a, a landmark. So there's just gotta be a better way where it's pleases everybody. It's hard. It's impossible to please everybody. I know, but it'd be great if people in the area could actually learn about the native peoples that occupied this area before them. Yeah. We'll just have to see how that goes. Yeah, if it doesn't go in their favor for some reason, it's going to. But if it doesn't go in the developer's favor, I would love to see the expression on his face when that's read out at the board decision. Unfortunately, I can't be there to see that expression. But what I can see is the expression on a (laughs) 35,000-year-old Egyptian face. We'll talk about him on the other side of the break. 
Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 213 of the Archaeology Show. Lucky 213. I don't know. Why is it why. lucky? Because <laughs> it's a 13? I don't know. Because it's unlucky normally? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, don't know. I think you're reaching there, but okay. Put, yeah. So anyway. Sure. All right. Well, I mentioned expressions on faces. There's a popular mechanics article titled, Scientists Reveal the Real Face of a 35,000-Year-Old Egyptian Man. And check the show notes on this one. We actually have the source article for this, which is Mm. pretty cool. So let's talk about this. Again, popular mechanics. The man died in Egypt, again, 35,000 years ago, approximately. And that's about 32,000 years before the first pharaoh in Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's ridiculous. I mean, people have been there for hundreds of thousands of years. Well, sure, but do you even call him an Egyptian at that point? (laughs) Well, I mean, as much as you call the Tequesta Indians the first Floridians. Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. true. I mean, Florida's <laughs> only been Florida for a few hundred years, right. so maybe not even that. I don't know what they called it when they first got there. Yeah, I think point. it was Florida early on, because Florida means something like, it's like flower or something in Spanish or some of the, I can't remember what language it is, but I remember seeing flower or- well, flores. Yeah, flora. Yeah. Yeah, like flower land or something. I don't know. All right. Anyway. Tangent. Tangent. <laughs> anyway, the only artifact recovered with the remains we're about to talk about was a stone axe. That was pretty much it. Okay. Um, they were excavated from a site called Nazlet Qatar 2, 43 years ago. Now- we do know some things about these remains because a lot of the skeleton was preserved and okay. the skull was actually preserved very well. Uh, okay. uh, what we knew about him is he was five feet. Well, first off, he was a he. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can tell that pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Stood five feet, three inches tall, was between 17 and 29 years old. And maybe you can talk about how we might know that. And is the oldest Homo sapien found in Egypt. One of the oldest found in the world. Not the oldest found in the world, of course, mm-hmm. but one of the oldest found in the world. Because mm-hmm. we don't have a, a lot of stuff. Further you go back, the, the harder it is you know, for us to find stuff because there's fewer of them. And mm-hmm. you know, preservation's hard mm-hmm. so for nature to do. But how do we know that he's 17 to 29 years old, do you think? What are some of the ways they could figure that out? Well, it probably has to do with the fusing of his bones. Yep. So when you're a child, there are certain bones which I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but I do know cla- your clavicles, which are your like collarbones, are one of them. They they don't fuse until you reach a certain age. There's some of the bones in your skull that don't fuse. And I thought, if I remember right, the skull ones take a long time. They do. They yeah. do. Yeah. So there's there's a bunch of different bones. that at The clavicle always jumped out at me because that's the last one to fuse, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure. You can be in your late 20s before that one is in its fully fused adult state. Right. So it's probably some combination of whatever bones were fused or not fused based Based on what they had of his remains that allowed them to get to that young age range. When you get over into your 30s, 40s, 50s, it's harder to say. You're looking at 
wear on your teeth and other things like yeah. that to make a guess. But at that point, it's really just a guess. Well, yeah, tooth wear depends on what you did and exactly. how you lived too. Yeah, that's yeah. why the the aging from bone fusing is actually like a really great way, and it's really solid because we have research and evidence about when these bones fuse for people. So the Brazilian scientist that reanalyzed these remains used photogrammetry, which is a little shocking to me, hmm. to recreate what this man may have looked like. Now, photogrammetry. We've probably glossed over on this show. We yeah. talk about it a lot on the Archaeotech podcast, yeah. and I've done photogrammetry before. Photogrammetry is generally taking a whole bunch of photographs mm -hmm. from different angles and different positions of a thing, mm -hmm. and then stitching those photographs digitally together to produce a 3D representation right. of mm -hmm. the object. The more photographs you have, the more you know even lighting that you have and things like that, and, and you know like off-angle things. Mm -hmm. The more you have for it, the the better the computer can say this is what I think this thing looked like. And honestly, didn't know that they would do something like photogrammetry for this only because. Photogrammetry, in my experience, has been used for, you know, usually larger things. Mm -hmm. um, I guess we kind of use photogrammetry for, like, artifacts and stuff, too. But, you yeah. know, it just, I don't know. For some reason, I thought they would do this in a different way. Yeah, that it is yeah. interesting. And the way photogrammetry works is you're, like, basically doing, like, 360 around an object taking photos well, and like start, like top to bottom too, right? As like, many as you can and as many angles as you yeah. can. If you have a 360 degree thing, then yes. Yeah, that's why I'm yeah. thinking because it's a skull, you can go all the sure. way around it, yeah. right? So I could see how that would work well in this situation. Yeah, the first image that's produced from photogrammetry, and this is if you do any study, it really just produces usually what we will call in landscape archaeology is like a terrain map. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a digital elevation model is mm -hmm. what the actual terminology is, a dem. And they produced a neutral black and white image, which is basically their digital elevation module model. Now, here's the thing. The black and white image, of course, has skin, nose, eyes, mouth, ears. Some of that stuff they kind of had to give some creative license on, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. Because when you do photogrammetry of the skull, you're going to get a massively accurate representation of the skull. Of the skull, right. So then what did they use to layer on? The, the original paper is actually in Portuguese, so you can't even read it. But mm -hmm. what did they use to layer on the skin? And, you know, we have a lot of obviously representations of human skulls and then what their faces looked like mm -hmm. so we can we can tell these minute differences within your within your cheek structure your bones and, and right. all the bones in your head and your face and stuff like that and probably interpret what your face probably looks like mm -hmm. you know i don't know how you can tell anything about ears or yeah, even lips or nose like all yeah, the or, parts or that are that Those are cartilage based like that would be really yeah. hard to i mean you're definitely taking some guesses and sure like you said we've probably got databases mm -hmm. with like skull compared with a photo or an image of what they look like in real life. Right. But again, do they do they really have a database like that somewhere? I've never heard of a database like that. And well, we could. The data's there. Yeah. Well, we have people's skulls that were donated to science and we have what they look like probably. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to create something like that, then somebody probably could. Yeah, maybe. But I don't know for sure if something like that I'm exists. Just, I'm thinking about some of the big collections that are used for doing like... Yeah like research on human skeletons and they're usually made up of well the one i can think of for sure at the smithsonian is made up of of basically unclaimed remains so yeah. they belong to people that we didn't know who they were they were often homeless or whatever they were not right. necessarily donated to science specifically but they because they were unclaimed anyway so the, mm -hmm. it's just curious like like how, how do you even begin to do that if you don't even have a population to compare it with it'd yeah. be very hard they also produced an image 
that again they took a lot more creative license on mm-hmm. and they made him black mm-hmm. because he would have been black in Egypt mm-hmm. uh, at that time mm-hmm. it, that makes sense yep and and except not very dark black if you know what I mean right yeah. it's a kind of a, a lighter color um, not light but I would say somewhere in the middle range yeah. so they had to they had to do something that was probably relatively mid-range just They're to not make a determination probably looking at averages yeah in modern populations right, right. and trying to kind of well, Go with that. they also gave him facial hair, head hair. And what I thought was interesting is his facial hair looks like he's got like a two day shadow and then his eyebrows look shaped. So <laughs> I would imagine people back in the day would have had messed up eyebrows. How do you even cut those when you are using stone tools? You know what I mean? Like, what do you do? Have, they have might your, have been aggressive. Have yeah. your partner like gnaw them off? Well, like, what do you do? No, but they could have used like grease or something to smash those bad boys down. I bet, or they just didn't care. About what I'm going to do to your eyebrows right now. Get some Einstein going going on over there getting dignified (laughs) oh is that what it is yep so the skull as compared to modern people today was pretty much the same except for one thing the jaw was a little bit more robust than Mm -hmm. than we do have today in in, on the average population Mm -hmm. right and and they're saying that that you know 35,000 years ago you're still talking about people who were i mean quite a few generations you know 170,000 years ago off of our evolution from homo erectus and and that line Mm -hmm. but also, there's could be some things in between there. It wasn't like Homo erectus spat out a Homo sapien, right. and then they were and Homo just sapiens. Like all of a sudden, they were Homo sapiens yeah. going forward, right? So some areas right. would have had some some variation for yeah, sure, you know. And, and then as we as we've in the last couple thousand years, and really in the last five six hundred years, have started to just breed with pretty much anybody around the world. Mm-hmm. We've started to even out. Yeah. You know, basically everybody's going to eventually everybody in the world is going to basically have all the same features because we just don't care who we mate with anymore. That, you know, we, yeah. don't, we we can go somewhere else and have a relationship with somebody in China. Yeah. You know, and whatever. There's still like population ge- geographical Geographic. separation. So yeah. like you're still going to have some variation for but that it's, reason. But it's probably. way less than it, it used to be. It is. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. The limitations of the recreation they acknowledged were the facial hair and any sort of expression they put on him. Yeah. He's basically expressionless. His eyes are open, but he's just kind of staring blankly into space. Mm-hmm. And to me, I got to say, he looks like a 20, 25 year old Samuel L. Jackson. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> That's what I'm getting out of him. <laughs> I mean, maybe a little bit. <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing I saw when I saw this picture. I was like, what's up, Sam? Uh, maybe because he's got kind of like a wider face and like the, the big cheekbones. Like, I guess I can yeah. kind of see it. <laughs> yeah, the black and white version is a little more realistic, I guess, just yeah. based on the surface features of the skull. Right, right. So, anyway. Yeah. Well, so I, this brings up questions for me. I have so many questions. So, does it seem to you like all of a sudden in the last, like, year or so everybody's trying to recreate prehistoric peoples like visually doesn't it seem like that we keep absolutely it like it just it and seems like it, it. it's like an explosion of this happening though like well, all of a sudden is it technology caught up and yes. they, they can do it like i think we've got more data yeah we've got more data i think somebody must be looking at how is how do current skulls match with current faces? Mm-hmm. Somebody is looking at that, like I said. They have to be, because otherwise, you know, we very much want to know what it looked like to live in the past. Mm-hmm. And one of those things that helps us visualize it is what did the people actually look like? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it helps us humanize them. It, it helps does. us, you know, 
put ourselves in their shoes and it's just like it's really interesting to me i really want to know what they looked like i guess i'm i feel a little bit differently i i worry about what kind of modern biases are we putting mm-hmm. onto the images of the people that they're trying to recreate because in these the authors here even said it that you know they have to take some creative license because there's just certain things that you can't know yeah. but i'm i just wonder what kind of biases we might be introducing into it and is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel a little bit uncertain about whether or not it's a good thing. And why, why does it matter? Why do people? Why are people so obsessed with yeah. that? But yeah, I don't know. All right. Well, I don't know either. But we're going to go to a much more horrific expression on the next article <laughs> if you're clicking on the show notes. <laughs> Another skull. <laughs> I know. And we're going to talk about gold dental work on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Welcome back to... Episode 213 of the Archaeology Show. And now we're talking about gold teeth. What's this one all about? (laughs) Yeah, this article is called 17th Century French Woman's Gold Dental Work Was Likely Torturous to Her Teeth. And it was published in Archaeology News. And this is, it's really cool. And definitely check out the article because they have a full on image of the skull. So you can see exactly mm-hmm. what this gold dental work looks like. It's, it's really neat. Yeah. But it is the remains of an aristocratic French woman that were found at Chateau de Laval in northeastern France in 1988. And they know who she is and everything. She, Her name was Anne de Allegre, and she lived from 1565 to 1619. Mm-hmm. And we know all that about her because she was super well-preserved, and she was also fully embalmed and buried in a lead coffin. A lead coffin. Yeah. Lead coffins are so cool. Have I ever told you about the lead coffin uh, that we found? I don't. Maybe. So, actually, I guess we're getting nostalgic today because before I worked on the Miami yeah. project, I worked on a different cemetery project up in New Jersey. And these coffins were from like the 17 and 1800s. So, they were a little bit newer. But there were a handful of lead coffins there that they... Of course, just they didn't open them in the field or anything, but they I heard through the grapevine later on that they took them back and they were they opened them and found like these really well preserved um, skeletons inside. So anyway, yeah. really cool. Well, this woman, maybe they were trying to preserve her. I don't know what, but eh. I don't know. She's just maybe rich. Just what they have. Yeah, just yeah. rich and did the, the fancy rich thing for her like, burial. <laughs> it'd be like a lot of lead. It, yeah. yeah. Well, lead but lined. I think it was. Even so. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, anyway. like I can't imagine it was like. Pure lead. That right. would have been too soft, actually. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. Yep. But anyway, yeah, her teeth, and again, these skull pictures are just frightening. But <laughs> They're cool. Uh, I love it. <laughs> her teeth had fine gold wiring holding them in place. Yeah, they kind of look to me almost like 
the wires from braces that yeah. go across your teeth, but without the little brackets, right? So like yeah. it's like somebody took those wires and sort of wove them in front of and behind your teeth in order to like hold them in place, basically. I'm sure some rich kids got a gold retainer today. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> That'd be ridiculous, but sure. Yeah. There was also an ivory tooth that was in place of a missing front incisor, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, you can really see, again, in the picture, it just looks like a hunk of ivory Like when you look <laughs> at it in the skull. But I bet... You know, for somebody who was probably hiding their teeth a lot anyway when they talked because she had bad teeth, I yeah. bet it did kind of like resemble a tooth enough that it at least didn't look like a hole in her mouth. Right. Well, she was excavated in 1988, but we're talking about her today because while they saw some of the wires that were visible in 1988, there's been a reanalysis, which is half the articles Always we talked about. a reanalysis, right? Yeah. And they reanalyzed yeah. her teeth and saw some new stuff. Yeah, the researcher's name is Rosen Culliter, and her team, they basically scanned the skull using a cone beam, which uses x-rays to create mm -hmm. a 3D image, basically. Yeah. Now, that's what I would have expected more out of our last article, to be honest with you. Photogrammetry yeah. still surprised me just a little bit. but Yeah, you know. it is interesting. Yeah. Well, you know what it is? is because in the skull, they wanted to see the outside so they could reconstruct the outside. Mm -hmm. In this case, they needed to see both inside and outside because right. they were trying to figure out what caused her to put these gold wires on her teeth in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I guess like you would imagine from what we've been talking about so far, <laughs> she had significant periodontal disease and that would have caused her teeth to be loose and just kind of shaky, you know, yeah. and, and probably some of them, it caused some of them to fall out is probably why she lost that, that front tooth that she had replaced with ivory. And it seems like our best guess is that she had these gold wires put in place to hopefully stop these loose teeth from, from falling out eventually. So they wrapped them around teeth that weren't falling out, maybe? Yeah, something yeah. like that, yeah. They were wrapped around some of the teeth, and then some of the teeth were actually pierced Ugh. with the wire to keep them in place. I can't imagine the pain. I know. Because there like, was no painkiller. No. Yeah. But if you if you stay away from where the root is, you're not going to feel anything, right? they know where the root right? was? Well, they would know not I'm, to go close to the gum the, area, probably. The fine tools required... In yeah. you know the late 1500s, I know. early 1600s, to True. be able to do that, man. The fact that they didn't break any of her teeth while yeah. piercing them to to thread wires through is actually kind of insane. So yeah, yeah. At the time, it was basically cutting edge dentistry, you mm -hmm. know, top notch stuff, people doing yeah. things. But they didn't have proper studies back then to find out like what are the long term implications of this. Yes, and of course, when she first had it done, she would have been in an amazing amount of pain. Right, sure, no, no way around that. But lots of dental work is painful, yeah. so like, okay, sure. Right. They said that she needed periodic retightening of the wires as well. Which would have been painful Which every would have time, been painful. probably. They had to go in and. Yeah. I'm just thinking, did you, you had braces, right? Yeah. Did you ever have to have your wires oh, tightened? No. I actually never had braces. I had oh, a retainer. Oh, you had a retainer. Yeah. Okay. Well, for all my friends out there who have had braces, you know what I'm talking <laughs> about, where, you know, every once in a while they would have to just tighten up that wire and then your mouth would be sore for days afterwards. I bet. So it was yeah. not a comfortable thing. The teeth that they were fastened to would mm -hmm. have been eventually they said destabilized as well which makes total sense mm -hmm. yeah yeah so they might not have been damaged but then being used as like a tie-off point mm -hmm. <laughs> for the teeth that were falling out would have eventually caused damage to them as well yeah they were postulating why she would have done this and yeah. they said that it's you know social pressure and a lovely smile was you know had perceived value in women at the mm -hmm. time as was the rest of their appearance but there's a actually a painting of her down the way here yeah which 
paintings of that time, you never see like a full on tooth smile. No, she's got like her lips, lips almost pursed yeah. together. Right? But isn't she beautiful in the picture oh, yeah. in the painting? Yeah. So I, I thought that was interesting to see. If you're already beautiful, then you're probably even more invested to like maintain mm-hmm. that beauty, especially as you age and if things like your teeth are going bad. Yeah. Or you always hear about Queen Elizabeth the first and how she had a lot of vanity around her beauty as she aged and she was doing crazy things right. to make herself look younger and prettier or whatever. So, you know, not a lot has changed <laughs> in our modern society. <laughs> Women still do a lot of crazy things to mm-hmm. maintain their beauty as they age. So I suspect we're seeing some of that here with this alteration that that this right. woman did to herself yeah it's cool that we have we know so much about her to be honest she yeah. was a socialite she was born at a time of the french religious wars and she was a protestant mm-hmm. where the majority of the population was roman catholic so yeah. she already had that sort of controversy going for her mm-hmm. she was married twice which is interesting mm-hmm. widowed the first time before she was 21 mm-hmm. that sucks yeah and then she married a second time and she was widowed again they didn't talk much about her second marriage in this article, but she did eventually die at age 54 from an unknown illness. And of yeah. course, these gold wires were put into her mouth at some point before she died. Yeah, before she died, her property was seized and she had to hide from Catholic forces during France's Eighth War of Religion from 1585 to 1589. Yeah. It's good to know that, you know, the Catholics waged some good war back then. <laughs> so, well, you know what? The Protestants were, were waging it right back at them. So it was just a time of yeah. religious strife and Just like God told them to. (laughs) So continuing on with what her life was like, she also had a son named Guy who was killed in battle at the age of 20. Yeah. And just crazy that that was what her life, like she's got her property seized. She has a son that she loses in battle. She's widowed twice. Like this is (laughs) a stressful life that this lady was living. For sure. Like even more stressful probably than most people were experiencing that time. It seems like anyway, at least for somebody like her with money and stuff like that. As we've established, her life was very stressful and periodontal disease is often a symptom of a stressful life and also poor nutrition. But poor nutrition often happens when your life is stressful and you're not having access to all the resources that you might need on a daily basis that doesn't so, matter. You're going to have a pretty smile, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and you're going to put gold in your teeth to do it. Yeah. You know, it is. It There's there's something about that that makes me think it's like a control thing a little bit. Right. Yeah. Like like when everything in your life around you is falling apart, the only thing you can control is your own body, you know. Yeah. And so you see that with people today, too. Like a lot of the things people do themselves because it's control that they have. They can do what they want. And, you know, for her, she wanted her pretty smile. She was beautiful. But she was losing her teeth and she was clearly probably not happy about it. So she had this work done to maintain a smile and it might have done more damage than good. But I don't know. She did only (laughs) live to be 54. So (laughs) it was just tough life for poor Anne de Allegre here. Yep. All right. Well, that's about all we have for today. I guess come back next week when we'll... You know, be in the United States or again in some sort of border prison because we did something wrong. We took oh over God. uncooked bacon or something. <laughs> you know, they don't Trust like that. Trust me, we're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm in charge of making sure our refrigerator is up to border inspection standards. <laughs> I mean, I'm all for laws and regulation and sometimes, but we had uncooked frozen chicken from Costco in a big bag that we brought with us two months ago. It's been in our freezer ever since. And technically we can't take it back across the border without cooking it. No, we cannot. Yeah. And that's weird. 
Right. Well, we were just, weren't supposed to bring it across the border in the first place. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's probably I true. forgot it was there when we came through to Mexico. We got lucky. Yeah. We didn't get searched. But also somebody once said, somebody that was down here with us said that it doesn't matter where you got it from. Once it comes back into the United States, it's Mexican chicken. That's right. So no chicken is allowed. All right. Well, I know what's for dinner. Mexican chicken. <laughs> By way of the United States, I That's guess. right. That's sure. Right. Yeah, let's do it. Imported Mexican chicken. Import- imported American chicken? Yeah, whatever. I don't even know. Whatever. All right. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Uh, a person named William Pessel also smoke. A person named William Pessel also smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.